I know you got a lot of snow out there, but I want to take you to happier days. Summer days. And one of the traditional summer activities in the Philia household growing up was a trip to the Illinois State Fair. Every single year we went to the fair. And it was a great time because, I mean, we got to milk a cow and you got like a carton of milk. Not not just straight from the cow, but it was pasteurized, you know, it was like that was a separate thing. You got to milk a cow, you got to see the horse races, no gambling. Uh, you got to um, ride rides, they had this conservation area and Smokey Bear would be there, you got to meet him perhaps. Uh, see loggers on the, on the logs that twirl in the water, I don't, I don't know what that's called, I'm sure there's a name for it, but you got to see that. All sorts of great stuff. But let me tell you, probably the driving force behind our annual visit to the fair. I don't want you to think less of us, but I'm going to tell you what it was. Why are you laughing, Christy? You know what it is. Okay, okay, we haven't, we haven't rehearsed this. What is it, Christy? The free stuff! It's the free stuff! I did not plan that. Like, she knew it without me. That, that was not planned. Okay, it's the free stuff. So, we would go... We would go from tent to tent. Now, unfortunately, my parents will probably listen to this message, and they're going to call me. We're going to talk about this. So, Mom, I'm sorry, but it's true. Uh, we would go from, like, tent to tent. Like, there was a governor's tent, the conservation tent. You get pencils, you get pens, you get rulers. You can use all that stuff for homework and taking that stuff to school. You get balloons. You get buttons. Buttons, people. Do people give out buttons anymore? Do they do that in Wisconsin? I don't know. Uh, maybe they do. But maybe the, maybe you think there's no use for buttons, but I will tell you that you're wrong. Because one week, we had like a spirit week at school, and someone in their infinite wisdom came up with button day. And so I was like, this is my day. It's button day. So I would get in all those Illinois State Fair buttons, you know, for the governor, and I milked the cow, look at me, you know, all these different buttons. And I just put them on a shirt. And I went to school that day, and nobody had as many buttons as I did, because I go to the Illinois State Fair. And I walked around school that day, and I was like clanging. You know, the buttons were just clanging all day long, and I was proud. Um, Free stuff. Free stuff. Now, some of you know exactly what I mean. You watch the price is right, and it makes you really happy, you know, when someone wins. Or when someone loses the free stuff, I guess. You know, you watch Wheel of Fortune, but, but whatever. You like... The free stuff. Some of you know that's how you are. You know, there's a free lunch in town. Some business is sponsoring it, and you're the first one in line. You know who you are. Um, when it comes to free stuff in our spiritual life, I tend to think it's a little more complicated because I know that I serve a God that's big and that He blesses us with incredible earthly blessings. Like, all good gifts come down from the Father of heavenly life. That's James, right? You know, so, so all the earthly blessings that I enjoy come from the hand of God. He gives me free stuff. I mean, let's just say that. I know it sounds a little crude, but, but I can praise Him for that. And if this is a Thanksgiving message, that's exactly what we would do. But this is not a Thanksgiving message. I want to talk about the complications of free stuff. Um, in the book of Job, We've covered this already. You've got a guy that is suffering immensely. You know, he's, he's lost his children. He's lost his wealth. His wife can't stand him. Everything has gone wrong. He, he's at the bottom. And we know Satan has done it. Satan stood before God. And this was Satan's accusation. 
Does Job serve God for no reason? You've put a hedge of protection around him. But if you take everything from him, he will curse you to your face. So one of the problems with free stuff, we can put it on the screen here, I think it's A. One of the problems with free stuff, free stuff's complicated. And one of the reasons free stuff is complicated, A, we'll put that up, Satan thinks free stuff undermines our righteousness. Like, you serve God because you're just in it for earthly blessings. You just want the free stuff. And so, Job, of course, Job's going to serve God if he is rich and has a lot of kids, has a great wife, a great life, lots of camels, lots of goats. He's got it all. And, and, and Satan's saying, God, you've given him every reason to be righteous. And I say it's all selfishness. It's all selfishness. Because if you take that stuff from him, you will see how selfish Job is. Satan's accusation is this. If God gives us a bunch of earthly blessings, we will serve him for the wrong reasons. And that's not a heart righteousness. That's not a righteousness that comes from our heart and our love for God. That comes from our love for free stuff. That is Satan's basic accusation against Job. That's kind of complicated because probably you know some Christians, and you probably see some on TV. I'm not going to name names. But they sound like they're in it for the free stuff. Claim it. It's yours. You know, I mean, that's out there. It gets even more complicated because not only is Satan doing this, but Job's friends are doing this too. B, uh, we covered this already a few weeks ago, but Job's friends want him to repent so that he gets his stuff back. Okay? Like, one of the main things that they say in the opening chapters of Job is, like, Job, you know you've done wrong. You need to repent, and you need to get your stuff back. God is going to bless you if you repent of your wickedness. And Job's like, I haven't done anything wrong. No, no. just You know you've done wrong. Just repent. You get your stuff back. So, the friends are acting as well, let's just say it, they're acting like Satan's agents in this story. But you know what's interesting about the book of Job? And I believe this is true. I don't think at any point does Job say to God, give me my stuff back. He never, ever says it. Instead, what Job does is he always says, I am an innocent sufferer. I don't deserve what has come upon me. Like, that is his main statement. Then he has some issues with God that we're going to deal with in a minute. But but he never says, friends, you're right, I need my stuff back, Let, let's deal with this. He never goes the selfish route. He totally rejects uh, um, his faith based on earthly blessings. He totally rejects that notion. Now, let's take it a step further. Uh, if you want to turn your Bible to Job, we're going to be in uh, chapter 15 and following. Probably be good if I pull my notes up at some point here. Here we go. Um, Job, chapter 15 through 21. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit because we don't have time to do all those chapters, of course. But <clears throat> we're in the second cycle of speeches here. There's, there's three cycles of speeches between Job and his friends. And, and it basically goes like this. Job, you did something bad. You deserve to suffer. So please repent and get your stuff back. And Job keeps saying, I'm innocent. I didn't bring any, I didn't do anything to deserve this. So I've got a God problem. You know, what's going on with me and God? I don't understand what's going on. I mean, that's kind of what all the speeches circle around. 
But there's one other issue that I don't think we've addressed directly yet, and it has to do with free stuff and earthly blessings and, and all of that. We tend to count on a principle. Like, even if earthly blessings from God are not present right now in your life, like even if you don't see those blessings very well, at least you can count on this principle. What you sow is what you reap. What you plant in the ground is what grows up out of the ground. You reap what you sow. You get back what you put in. Now, sowing and reaping is also complicated, unfortunately. And I want to show you, because in 15 through 21, in the second set of speeches, one of the main issues in that set of speeches is sowing and reaping. Do you get back what you put in? Is there a return for all your good behavior? Like, that is one of the main things in the second set of speeches. I want to show it to you. Um, I'm going to have you look at chapter 18, 5 through 12. Chapter 18, 5 through 12. Here we go. <clears throat> this is Bildad speaking. And Bildad says to Job, this is chapter 18, 5, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. The flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into his net, into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. And what Bildad says, and Job does not directly, I mean, if you read Job, he's going to respond to this a little bit, but Job basically accepts that this is normally true. Normally, you reap what you sow. Normally, the wicked should have something bad happen to them. They should be terrified. And if they do wicked things, there should be a snare ready to catch them. That's just the way life should be. And we all kind of count on that. You know, if you work hard, you earn a paycheck, and, and now you have what you need. And if you cheat on your taxes, you should get caught. And if you steal from work, your boss should find out and things should happen. We kind of count on sowing and reaping just working out. We count on We count on justice in the world. If someone goes in on a violent rampage like we've seen recently, we count on there being justice for that person. If you've sown violence, you should reap the consequences of that violence. I mean, so let's just say this from the outset. We count on the sowing and reaping principle. We count on justice in the world. And that's a good thing. Like, Bildad says it, and I know the friends get a bad rap in the book of Job, but can we just agree, like right now, Bildad, you're right. The wicked often suffer, have bad things happen to them. They often get caught in their own traps. Bad people do get caught. Nobody can deny sowing and reaping in principle. But it's more complicated than that, and Job wants to answer the complication. So would you look at Job 21, verse 7? Job 
And Job has, and again, Job doesn't necessarily disagree with sowing and reaping. Like, he agrees. That's how things normally work out. But he's got an issue. He's like, it's a little more complicated than you're making it sound. He says in verse 7, 21-7, Why do the wicked live? They reach old age and grow mighty in power. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? So, Job's got an issue. And he's like, and he even says later in, in chapter 21, he says, you ever notice that when caravans go by and you start talking to them, that they have stories of wicked people prospering? You know, they're just they're trading camels and they got some stories about it, you know, and, and there's this bad guy and he's doing really well with his camel trading, treats his servants terribly, beats them, but he's doing really well, he's really rich. They got some stories to tell. And Job says, you all know wicked people that are doing really well for themselves. And so I thought I would name a few wicked people this morning that are doing really well. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Um, but, but you can probably think of some people who live an immoral lifestyle and are still doing really well for themselves. Why is it that some people can live a wicked lifestyle, uh, live immorally, and face serious consequences for it, and some seem to be healthy and wealthy and things are good? What's going on with that? Some people get away with it. Some people don't. And it seems to undermine this whole sowing and reaping thing. You know, how does that work? Um, what is the answer then to this whole issue? Like, how do we how do we deal with the fact that sowing and reaping can't always be counted on to describe this life? I'm not talking about the next life. I'm not talking about Judgment Day. I'm talking about this life. Should we just be wicked carefully, more carefully? Make sure we do it right. Should we be righteous? What happens if you obey and you seem to get no blessing for it? I remember a professor in college that would always say this. He loved to say this. Obedience brings blessing. He said it all the time. And, and sometimes I started to think, well, what if it doesn't though? You know, like what if, what if, what if earthly blessings don't happen because you've obeyed? What if obeying gets you in more trouble? What do you do with that? And Job has, in a moment of brilliance, Job has an answer to the big problem of unfairness in life. Ever, ever kids ever said, life's not fair? I hear it. I bet you hear it. I've thought it. I bet you've thought it. Life's not fair. Where's my free stuff? I've been good. Let me show you Job's answer. Go to Job 19. Job 19. This has got to be one of the high points in the entire book of Job. This has got to be one of the best things. Uh, and let's tempted to read the whole thing because it really gives you... I'm going to read the whole thing. Check this out. Job 19. Job answered and said, 
How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net around me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my path. He's stripped me from, from me my glory, and he's taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I'm gone. In my hope, he's pulled up like a tree. He's kindled his wrath against me. He counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I become a foreigner to their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me when I, when I rise to talk against them, against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. And when I read that chapter, checking in on Job. How you doing, Job? I see two things that Job is really having a hard time with. And the first part of that chapter is God is still against me. He has set this net for me, this trap. That's Job's complaint. But then he also says, all of my friends and family members have just kind of left me alone. You ever gone through that? You're going through a hard time and suddenly people don't want to talk to you, don't want to deal with you. Life stinks and it feels like people are more distant than ever. This is Job's life. Relatives don't want to talk to me. Kids don't want to look at me when I walk around through town. Every, it's like there's a social loss in suffering is what Job is talking about. We ought to keep that in mind as we know people that are suffering so that we don't follow that same problem. But then in that moment of brilliance, here's what Job does. He says, I wish all of my words were written down in a book because I know my Redeemer lives. And one day, when my skin is all destroyed, I'm going to see him with my own eyes. Not your eyes, my eyes. I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him. What is Job's answer to the unfairness of life? What is Job's answer to when we sow good seed and we seem to reap bad stuff, bad fruit? What is his answer? And it's the Redeemer. 
Like, that's his answer. Redeemer. Now, it's not the Redeemer that you think. Like, when we talk about Jesus redeeming, what we usually mean is that Jesus has died on the cross to save people from their sin. He's, he's brought us out of slavery. But, but here's the thing about Job. Job never says, Job never says, I have sinned and I need to repent. Like, we know Job's a sinner. He's not saying that. But Job's whole point in his speeches is, I'm innocent. I don't deserve this suffering. So Job is probably not then calling for a redeemer from his sin. Because that makes no sense with the whole story of Job. So what kind of a redeemer does Job want to have? What kind of a redeemer does Job hope to see? And I think it has to do with those words he wants written down. He says, oh, that my words could be recorded in a book. Write them down, make them permanent. Which is kind of ironic because we've got them in a book, right? Like we're all reading it. Like, Job, you had your answer. But, but this is what I think he wants to see happen. If you could write down my words, they would stand forever. And then one day a Redeemer would come and say this. Yes. That Job guy who's now long dead, he was innocent. He didn't deserve the suffering that he suffered. And yes, the sickness took him. You know, yes, he died, uh, uh, you know, a frail man with all of life falling apart. We know it doesn't happen that way, but that's what Job thinks. You know, he's like, I can die, but if I could just see my Redeemer and have him say, Job, you were righteous. You did follow me. I wasn't cursing you. That was Satan. You know, if Job's like, if I could just have someone speak for me, and say that this is not my fault. Something else is going on here. I want an advocate. I want a defense attorney. You know, like, get me someone to talk for me. That's the Redeemer that Job wants. Now, how does that help you? I would say it like this. When, when you reap what you don't sow, when life falls apart, and you say, I've, I've been obeying, I've been following Christ, and life stinks. When that happens, what you have left is the Redeemer. And he says, my flesh may fail, like, like my body may wear out and die and just be full of boils, and, and eventually my skin's going to be all be destroyed. But at least I've got my Redeemer, and I'm going to see him. My Redeemer's my friend. I'm going to see him with my own eyes. So, so this is Job's statement. I worship God because He's God. Not because of the hedge of protection He puts around me. Not because of the earthly blessings He gives me. Not because of any of those temporal benefits. I'm not in it for the benefits. I'm in it for Him. I worship God because He's God. I worship God because He's holy. He's great. He's mighty. He's love. That's who He is. My Redeemer lives. And one day I'm going to see Him like a friend would see a friend. And my Redeemer is going to give me the well done, good and faithful servant. You made it. You went through the suffering and you made it. You see that Job worships God for God. Now I'm not saying Job, other passages, Job has an issue with God. I understand it. We looked at one last week. I know Job has issues with God. But in this moment of brilliance, inspiration, Job says, this is all about me and God. And my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to see Him one day. And that is better than anything life can offer. Being with God in heaven is better than anything life can offer. 
So, when Job says, my soul faints for him, my soul longs for him, I'm just saying, is that our perspective? Is that what we do? Do we worship God because he's God, or do we worship God because he can fix stuff in our life? Because if you worship God for selfish reasons, and I know we all have them, I'm not saying that. Like, I pray all the time that God would fix stuff. I'm not saying that's bad. It's not bad at all. We're supposed to call out to him to help us. But if my reason for worshiping him is only so that he can fix stuff up in my life, that's the wrong reason. That's the wrong answer. Because at some point, life's going to fall apart, and you're not going to have a reason for worshiping him all of a sudden. I worship him because he's God. He's a creator. He's holy. That's it. And that is a deeper faith than give me the free stuff. All right. Uh, let's end this message with some implications, some takeaways, all right? Um, well, what would I have you do with this message? You know, what, what are you supposed to do? Um, key takeaways for this, hopefully. Um, you would hear this message and say, my kids need to hear this. You know, my kids need to know this. Teach your kids that life's not fair. I mean, don't you think, don't you see in our culture that a lot of people think life is supposed to be fair? And if it's not fair, it's like it's like a huge issue. You know, we like break down and know how to handle it. Life's not fair. Now, I'm not saying you teach that by like, you know, we're, we're going to give Johnny, you know, like uh, two desserts and you get like, you know, a pretzel. You know, it's not like that, you know. I'm going to teach you about some fairness here, you know. That, that's like, that's favoritism. That's something else. It's that, you know. But, but when life doesn't go well, you know, when your child studies, studies really hard for a test and then fails it, that's not fair. And then the other guy in class, he doesn't study at all, but he just got the A because he kind of has this natural smart thing going on. You know what? I know people like that, that just cruise through school. I know people that were on the, the top. I'm talking kids stuff now. You know, that's, why, that's, that's the mode I'm in right now. I know, I know high schoolers that took easy classes to their high school career so that they could be in the top ten, you know. I took physics and I hated it. Hated it. Took chemistry. Couldn't stand it. You know? Um, and yeah, physics took my grade down a little bit. And, and actually, I was knocked out of the top ten. You know, you think, life's not fair. Life's not fair. But it's okay. Because God is faithful. You know God. And so when life's not fair, you still have Him. He's still with it. You still stand on Him. You still trust Him. He's still in charge. we got, we got to talk to our kids about this and let them know when life disappoints them, they can expect more of that. There's going to be more of that. Because this world is not fair. Secondly, I think, and this is the other side of it, this is the other side of it, we don't assume justice in this life, but we do work for it. We do work for it. So yes, I know, I know that the bad guys don't always get caught. I know people that embezzle money Sometimes get away with it. I know there are secret sins that people take to their grave. And you may have some of those, you know. Thank God they're forgiven, right? I know that not everybody gets caught in this life. But that doesn't mean we don't work for justice. I know there are kids that don't have a meal today. And that's not just. I know kids that follow Jesus and they're hungry. That's not right. You'd think, you'd think they would have a meal for being a worshiper of God. 
not right. But that, but I don't get to, I don't get to say, kids, there's some hungry kids in the world. That's not fair. But the way the world is, what are we going to do? That, that's not my response. I can't say that. Life's not fair, but I got to work for it. I got to work for justice. And maybe that means we've got to have a conversation between what's fair and what's just, you know, and how that all plays out. I'm not doing that right now. But we can't assume justice in the world, but we better work for it. We're not people that say, well, clearly, Job, God brought that terrible calamity into your life, so he must want you to suffer, and so I'm just going to add to it. because That's what he wants, right? That'd be awful. We relieve suffering. Even suffering that God has allowed, we relieve. That's what we're called to do. And then thirdly, let's say this. Um, you've got to make knowing Jesus central to everything. If you're in it for the money, if you're in your spiritual walk for anything other than give me more Jesus, at some point that's going to fail you. <clears throat> okay? At some point, if you're in it for any other reason than Jesus, that those reasons are going to fail you. And you're going to walk out of the church discouraged, disappointed, disenfranchised. I thought I was, you know, I thought this is what it was about. Give me Jesus at the end of the day. That's it. Just give me Jesus. So if you would focus on knowing Him, reading the Bible, praying to Him, getting into these main things, that will keep you steady when life falls apart. Because your Redeemer lives. Let's pray. Father, I... uh, I thank you that we have an incredible hope. I thank you that when this life seems empty, that we know that you are never not that way. I mean, you're not empty. There's fullness in your presence, fullness of the Spirit living in us, fullness of joy even in the midst of trials, fullness of trust even when we're standing on what seems to be shaky ground. We thank You for Your faithfulness to us. I thank You for this conversation that Job and the friends had and and showing us that life is not always neat and tidy like we would like it to be. It challenges us sometimes. But we need to hear this. And I pray for those who are at the bottom or somewhere near it right now. I pray that You would give them a moment of inspiration like Job to cry out, My Redeemer lives. Everything's okay. Because even though my skin's going to be destroyed, I will see God. My eyes, not Your eyes, my eyes will see Him. Lord, help us hold on to that hope and help us give that hope the people that are at the bottom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.